When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Slate Money is brought to you by BowlandBranch.com, offering luxury betting at affordable prices. Order right now and they'll give you 20% off, plus free shipping. Get sheets, towels, blankets, duvet covers, and more at bowlandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com and use the promo code MONEY. And by Carbonite, keep your digital files safe this year. Protect your photos, music, and documents with automatic cloud backup from Carbonite. Try it free without a credit card at Carbonite.com and use the offer code SLATE to get two free bonus months if you decide to buy. And by MileIQ. If you're one of the 60 million Americans who drive for work, then you know that your miles are your dollars. MileIQ is the only mileage tracker app that detects, logs, and calculates your miles for you, ensuring that every mile is accounted for and no dollar is lost. Try Mile IQ for free today by texting Slate Money to 31996. Hello, and welcome to the Pushing People Out edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion, recording, I believe, for the very last time in the Slate offices at 95 Morton Street in the West Village. On this somber occasion, I am joined by Kathy O'Neill. Not the last time we do Slate Money, but just the last time we record here. I was going to say, we needed to clarify yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, like, look, come on. We're going to be here forever. We're we going all. to be here with you in your ears forever, but we're not going to be here physically in the West Village forever because Slate is moving up in the world, or at least southeast. Um, Kathy O'Neill, you, you're mathbabe.org. You're I am. amazing. Thank you. You are going to be talking to us about free trade and yes. things like that. Don't, honestly, this is this is actually going to be much more interesting than it sounds. Um Jordan Weissman, Moneybox columnist at Slate. 
Hello. Phil. You're going to talk to us about gentrification, and there's a whole new zoning law in New York. Zoning law, which is like the most important thing that bores most people to tears, at least in New York City. This is not I'm, a boring episode. This is an important yeah. episode. Yeah, but and you have to stay through to the end because I'm gonna we're gonna talk even more about the most awesome story in financial <laughs> everything right now, which is Credit Suisse, which is the gift that just keeps on giving. Is Credit Suisse officially a hot mess? Like, is there like a des- like, is there an SEC de- designation at some point? Like, you are a... Just got turned up to 11. It's, it's a systemically it's important Im- hot, hot mess. mess. Yes, yeah. that was what I was... <laughs> um, but yeah, let's start any mini money mo with Kathy, because... Why not? Yeah, let's talk. Let's talk free trade. Look, this is not a boring topic. This is the thing that is is winning Trump voters this this election. This era. is absolutely true. If you go to a Trump rally, besides and you the racism, count up how <laughs> many minutes. The no, but I'm, yeah. even including the racism, that if you count up how many minutes he spends bashing Mexicans and how many minutes he spends being rude about women and how many, like all of those put together is dwarfed by the amount of time that he spends on trade. Trade is really his number one issue. It is, and it's there for a reason. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to. there's a news hook, and then there's like this incredible academic study, which we have to talk about. But the news hook is that this week, um, the New York Times um, featured a story about 1,400 jobs moving from Indianapolis to Mexico. And this is not just the New York Times. This is the number one image that Donald Trump himself has been using in all of his campaigns. This is the carrier air conditioner factory, which just the entire factory closed down pretty much overnight. And they said, all of your jobs are moving to Mexico. They they didn't say it. It didn't overnight. They told them. It took two months. They they announced it recently. (laughs) Yeah, they announced it. They announced that people people who now work in Indianapolis make like typically 20 bucks an hour or so. And they're moving it to Mexico where the average worker makes $19 per day. Now, keep in mind, like, obviously that's a cost saving, but the um, parent company, which is called United Technologies, is not losing money whatsoever on this company. It's actually making tons of money. So this isn't like a, a so sort of a business a, this necessity. This is a profitable air conditioning company, which is now going to become an even more profitable air conditioning exactly. company. Exactly. And their argument is that their shareholders insist that they do this. Well, I mean, it's not just that. It's just the job of business is to make more money. If you have the choice between something which makes X and something which makes 2x, you're going to choose the thing which makes 2x, right? Yeah. So what Trump's candidacy is sort of forcing a lot of people to do now is kind of wrestle with the reality of free trade, which for years was sort of pitched to the public as this unalloyed good. You know, it's every it's a win-win for everybody. Everyone's economy gets more efficient. Um, you know, we do the things we're best at. They do the things they're best you at. See, I, I feel like you're half right. Well, I feel like it was pitched to um, the. It was pitched as, as net net a good thing. I don't think anyone ever said it was unalloyed. I didn't think anyone ever. I don't think anyone no, ever but, said no, that no, like, but, the U.S. manufacturing center sector is going to benefit. From well, this. no, 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 no. Well, but, even what, so, though, even this wait. week, Miriam Sapiro, who like is was a trade representative for the United States um, until very recently, like wrote an op-ed in the New York Times talking about, oh, you know what. Uh, everyone should appreciate free trade because we have a, a, a surplus, um, mostly in the financial services and intellectual property sector, um, of $200 billion in free trade per year. And yeah. you know, it's like even those people aren't really talking about who's getting screwed by free trade. Yeah. So I want to finish my point, Felix, which is that, you know, back in when Bill Clinton was pitching NAFTA, 
he wasn't he certainly wasn't emphasizing the, the jobs that might go to Mexico. He was you know, he was emphasizing the new markets that would be opened to the U.S. Same thing with, you know, trying to joining the WTOs. You know, the, the the pitch was never that, oh, yeah, a lot of our, you know, screw and screw factories and electronics factories are going to head over to China. Um, it was opening brave new markets to the world. And so, you know, what economists have always sort of known, though, as, as you're hinting at, is that there are winners and there are losers and that there's supposed to be an adjustment period where, you know, the losers, the people who lose their factory jobs have to then go into a new industry that's supposedly gaining from trade. And some recent studies have been showing that that adjustment doesn't necessarily happen uh, quickly. It doesn't necessarily happen at all in certain regions of the country. So what happens is a town that loses its factory may never, ever recover. So there are two big things going on here in terms of economics. Um, we can more or less concede, I think everyone can concede, that $20 an hour heavy industry manufacturing jobs are not globally optimal for a global company like United Technologies, which can get just as good Mexican workers to do the same thing for a tenth of the price. Um, so those jobs disappear. And then the question is, what happens to those workers? And there are two answers in the sort of economic literature. One is they move into the services sector. Um, so you move from manufacturing into services. 70% of the U.S. economy is already services, and it's only rising. The problem with that is that service industry jobs don't pay as well as manufacturing jobs, especially not if they're union jobs, which a lot of these jobs were. Yeah, and then the second answer to the question of what happens to these workers is they move to where the jobs are. They've gone for, they, they, they're in some town which was a big manufacturing center, and then eventually what happens is those formerly big manufacturing centers start shrinking and the people move to other places where there are more jobs, again, probably in the services industry. And again, what seems to be happening is that, especially once you reach kind of middle age, people don't really move to where jobs are. Yeah, yeah to put a couple of numbers on it, like the, uh, about a third of the manufacturing jobs have been lost um, since 1990 in this country. So that's just a massive, millions of jobs have been lost. Um, the, the, uh, the study that um, um, Jordan was referring to by Otter, Dorn, and Hansen um, argued that actually uh, just, just the, if you just consider the, uh, the effect of China, of the jobs lost to China, about a fifth of those manufacturing jobs were lost directly to China. So we have these Chinese workers who are willing to work for less. And yes, you're right, um, Felix, that of course, the manufacturing jobs that are left, two thirds of them, also pay less in general. And I want to add one more wrinkle to this, which is that um, the people that are hit the hardest, that are like have the hardest time getting another job, getting a good paying job or moving are all the people that typically haven't actually had any college, didn't even necessarily finish high school. Yeah. So, And so these people are voting for Trump. Yes, well, they are. Well, it's And they're dying from overdoses, too. This is the same group of people it, we'll be talking about. It's not, uh, you know, the, whether or not they're actually voting for Trump in areas that have been hit hard by trade is like is not entirely clear. Um, I, I don't want to dive too deep into the weeds on this because we're not a politics show. But I have like when you actually look at the counties that Trump is winning, it's not clear he's winning places um, that were especially decimated because of trade and any more so than he's winning other counties. OK, uh, so, but I want yeah. I want to start. I, I, I kind of want to step back here because we're coming down very hard on free trade. I'm and, not. Well, I, I'm all in favor. Of free OK, trade. Well, so yeah, I want to make the point. Let's get to that. Yeah, actually. Well, I want to make the point is like 
One of the problems with the politics of free trade is that the downsides are extremely, extremely evident to the people who suffer from them, the people who lose their jobs. It's very, very obvious when your factory has been shut down and sent to and the, the jobs have been sent to China. The benefits you get from tr free trade um, are a little bit harder to notice. One thing is cheaper prices. You know, how have, has America really, I mean, is the typical American better off because of trade with China? Possibly, because it's probably kept inflation really low on certain kinds of consumer and goods. And it's not just inflation. It's, yeah. I mean, look at your iPhone. Yeah. You know, you couldn't have that if you had to make it all in... Yeah, I mean, it would be significantly more expensive. You're, yeah, you're, this is not a story about net benefit yeah. because we, as an, as the country, we've benefited from free trade. Yeah. The question is, who has lost? Yeah, and how are well, they going to be compensated, well, if at all? And that's uh, the thing: we've done a really shitty job compensating people. And what's more, the frame, especially in an election year in the United States of America, where the only people who are allowed to vote are United States citizens, is relentlessly domestic. And That's so what point. happens is that no one talks about all of these great jobs which are being created in Monterey, right? No one thinks that, you know, the people who are managing to move from impoverished lives in Chiapas to good manufacturing industry, you know, middle-class Mexican lives in northern Mexico, like, that's really good yes. for Mexico and Mexicans. But somehow, because Mexico and Mexicans aren't allowed to vote, we can kind of just consider them to be the enemy and we don't care about yes, them. Yes, that's a great point. I mean, how much this benefits China has been absolutely massive and much larger than the amount of, of suffering going on in the United States. Although it's hard to say that to someone who's actually going through that suffering. But yeah, it, it makes me question whether I'm a citizen of the United States or whether I'm a citizen of the world. Like, how do we decide whether free trade is something we want? Yeah. Or, do, or is it that too simplistic? Should we contextualize that with saying, what should America do? Why is it... By the way, I think that it's true that the Americans have suffered more. The like, like un college, uneducated Americans have suffered more than in other countries with free trade. There, there's a famous graph which gets does the round on Twitter every so often, showing basically the increase in earnings for um, various percentiles of the global earnings distribution over the past 20 years or so. And everyone has seen substantial increase in earnings, except for the very, very poorest. But if you start in about the 15th percentile of global earnings, all the way through to like the... 85th percentile or the 90th percentile, there's massive increases in earnings. And then the top 1%, as we know, have done really well as well. And then the weird thing is there's this dip between about 90 and 96%, um, where the earnings growth has been zero or even negative. And that is the Western middle classes, so the Western working classes, yes. basically. And those are the losers of from free trade. And, and and going back to Jordan's point, like we're not I, I wouldn't argue against free trade, really, because at the, and people say this a lot and it's true, like you wouldn't want these jobs necessarily to come back to the United States. The question is and by the way, it's not the only thing that's decimating jobs. Like just the robots doing jobs is another huge factor that's harder to point at. Yeah. But it's there. Yeah. It's, and and plus we have no idea whether those jobs would still exist if NAFTA and the WTO and all of those things had not been signed, but probably they wouldn't. I mean, you know, jobs are like water. You know, they, they kind of manage to flow around to where they're cheapest, regardless of what agreements yeah. I mean, one, 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 just to illustrate that point, one of the reasons people don't think, like, 
there are two major trade deals and the two really huge trade deals in the past like 30 years. There's NAFTA and there's China entering the WTO. And most economists don't think NAFTA actually made that much of a difference when it comes to jobs specifically. It may have affected wages. But part of the reason is that, Felix, as you're hinting, they think about 80% of that increase in trade between China and Mexico, I mean, the United States and Mexico, excuse me, uh, would have happened anyway. So it's not as if these trade deals alone are facilitating globalization. There are other factors at play. But let's, I want to move on to a much more sort of local version of what is basically the same question. Um, but before we do that, I want to tell you guys about Bolland Branch because I am very happy this morning having woken up well-rested in my from w- sleeping in my Bolland Branch sheets. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. I need to, I need to tell you guys about this because Bolland Branch is a sponsor of Slate Money. We like our sponsors. They make this entire show possible. And this is a good sponsor. They have this lovely soft bedding. It's super... Um, What's the word? Comfy? It's, it's comfortable, but it's also, like, really ethical. Like, cotton sheets are not things which you source in, like, Alabama anymore. That's the kind of trade that we want to outsource to India and places where the cotton is really good. And But this is... we They treat their workers incredibly well. They're incredibly ethical. So go support globalization because <laughs> this is the upside of globalization is these beautiful sheets. B-O-L-L and branch.com. They, it's not just sheets, it's duvet covers, it's towels, it's blankets. They're all amazing. You get free shipping. They get this amazingly beautiful package which arrives at your home. And you can try everything for 30 days. And if you don't like any of it, you just send it back again free. So it's really no risk. Um, if you go to bollandbranch.com today and use the promo code money, you get 20% off the entire order. So order as much as you can because the more you order, you, the more you save. That's math, right? Absolutely. That's that's math. Twenty. The, the higher the numerator... Anyway, bollandbranch.com, B-O-L-L and branch.com, promo code MONEY. 20% off. You want to do it. So listen, um, Jordan. Yes. I Can you explain... Because intuitively, I feel like this is exactly the same conversation, um, but I'm not entirely sure I can really articulate why. What what is the? Well, I feel I feel like gentrification and and like the U.S. Mexico thing. It's kind of the same conversation, just ontogeny recapitulating phylogeny. Yeah, whoa, whoa. I I think <laughs> so. I think I think you're actually you're onto something here because um, free trade. We talk about how it might be good overall, but there are certainly losers who we have to figure out how to compensate. Gentrification. Um, it certainly makes a city richer overall. It seems to make cities richer overall. There's actually, richer in terms of money or uh, in terms of better, more than just money. Actually, money. That's money what it does make it richer <laughs> money, in, terms ter- money. in terms of money. In terms of you know culture. In terms of uh, you know. In ter- I mean, reviving in terms of culture, neighbor. No, like that's it, no. No, I think in ter- some neighborhoods, yeah, it revives some neighborhoods. Like, I, and I and we'll get to this argument later. But um, and also, frankly, it actually benefits a lot of the studies have found it actually benefits a lot of residents in those neighborhoods previously. Some people, a lot of people are not displaced by gentrification and they reap the benefits of They just see their rents go up. A little bit, but they also see, possibly, they may be in a rent-controlled building. It's it, There are a lot of factors that they play might, there. They might own their apartments, in which case they become millionaires. Yeah, but or, you know, they have to deal with higher taxes, but, you know, they still get the new restaurants and are, bars down the street. renters. However... I don't think there's anybody who would try to argue that there are no losers from gentrification. Some people are displaced, and we have to figure out how do we help those people? What do we do for them? Um, So why are we talking about this? Well, 
this week, uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio in New York finally managed to push his major affordable housing initiative through the city council. And this is actually pretty controversial because the you know there were protesters showing up uh, when he first tried to get this through this idea through. It was shot down by all the community boards in the city. It okay, so heavily. So I'm going to stop you well, right there because this is the weird. This is the first weird thing which you need to explain to me. Yeah. Um, in my sort of model of New York City, you have Bill De Blasio who comes in on a you know, hard left kind of, we are going, I'm going, I'm sort of anti-gentrification. I'm going to stand up for the people who have been hurt by gentrification. He comes in with his Bill de Blasio redistricting, rezoning plan, which is presumably meant to address all this. And then you get protesters. And when I think of protesters, I think of community activists. I don't think of, you know, big developers who want to gentrify but wouldn't it be the gentrifiers who would no. be opposed to bill de blasio's rezoning plan no gentrifiers are, are, are okay with it so this is i mean de- yeah. developers worked with de blasio yeah on so de blasio that's, that's the reason people yeah. protest so de blasio has always been very friendly with developers more so than a lot of people realized when he was running so what does this plan consist of well basically what he wants to do is rezone large swaths of New York City, a uh, neighborhood, for instance, in Brooklyn called East New York, parts of Harlem, parts of the South Bronx, so that you can build denser and basically you can build luxury towers. Let's be real. That's what they're doing. They want to make it look like parts of Williamsburg. Um, but Without it, getting too, like, yeah. you know, gnarly about various different New York City neighborhoods, which yeah. 90% of the residents <laughs> <laughs> well, William, William, Williamsburg, I think, is a byword for most people. But anyway, the trade-off is that in order to build these towers, you have to set aside a certain amount of the units for affordable housing. Okay, now here's where I'm going to jump in, because yeah. this is actually math. Yeah. And it's it's a sleight of hand that de Blasio has used. I'm I'm one of the protesters, just uh, to, be, to, be, to be clear. Um it's it's all based on what's called the median income for the family of four. If we think about just let's fix a family of four, the median income of the city versus of the neighborhood. So yeah. the critical thing is that when new uh, development is made, there there's some some amount of that apartment building that's going to be set aside f- to be so so called affordable. But the affordability benchmark is the median income of eighty six thousand. For a family of four, for the whole city. Yeah, and so it's like 60% of that is like what? So it has to be someone who's making, a family that's making like $46,000 46000 And great, yeah. $46,000. That's what it's supposed to be affordable for. But if you look at East New York, which is where it's actually happening right now, the median income in East New York is $35,000. So what you're so, so everyone there is eligible. Great. <laughs> well, but the point is that if you replace what they have now, with something like this luxury tower, they're only going to be able to afford part of that luxury tower, and the rest of it is going to be well, actual gentrification. They're not even going to be able to afford that luxury tower because it's supposed to be affordable for the family with making forty six thousand. Not thirty five. Okay, so, so let me 35. just. I'm I'm still being really slow here. Yeah. Um, is this some weird kind of Nixon in China thing? Like after we had. Um, Rudy Giuliani and Mike Bloomberg, the gentrifier extraordinaire. He really was. Why are we now? protesting Bill de Blasio, who one would think would be the least gentrification. Well, you know, the, his plan would actually be a good thing if it happened in Manhattan, in a re- like Upper East Side. If the Upper East Side replaced one of their really tony uh, apartment buildings with one that has affordable housing based on this $46,000 figure, that would be an improvement. But what he's doing instead so far, we'll see. 
So we'll see. But so far, what he's doing is way below expectations, given that he came in as an Occupy mayor. Um, and he's actually gentrifying East New York. No, you know, I, I yes, he's gentrifying. Yes, East New York was going to gentrify. Here's the thing. New York City is ad- has been adding about 75,000 people per year and has to somehow keep up with that housing demand. Um, you can talk about keeping it like these neighborhoods affordable for people already in the neighborhoods. However, there's this greater issue of just keeping New York City affordable, period, for the middle class and lower middle class of New York City. And once you're getting to people making $46,000 a year, those are people who need affordable, who need apartments, who are right now yeah. being priced we, out. What we, what we have... What we have in the really big picture here, um, put all questions of affordable housing and median incomes and all of that to one side, is a very simple question of supply and demand. As Jordan says, we have an increasing population of New York City because it's an awesome place to live. And we have a housing stock which is not, which is not increasing as fast. And we also have a demand for bigger and bigger apartments. So the number of Apart, like square feet per apartment is going up. If you put all of that together, you naturally just very simple supply and demand get house prices, housing prices, rents all going up. And the only, the only way that you can really address that issue is by building more. And the main thing that any zoning change does, the main thing that this zoning change does is to encourage people to build more square footage. And more square footage and more apartments is the only way that you're going to allow people to be able to afford to stay in New York. And the whole question of median income and affordable housing and affordable rents and gentrification, I feel is kind of a slight sideshow to the big picture, which is supply and demand. We need more supply. Well, I, I think, totally agree. I, I, think, I think that's half true because, yes, we need more supply, we need more supply, we need more supply. However, there's... Are we ever? Is New York ever going to start looking like a city such as Chicago, where they actually managed to overbuild, partly because the population just wasn't growing while the while these condos were going up all over downtown? I find that a little bit unlikely. Right, and so, so, if you do just build and you don't have some set asides to assure affordability, you're probably not ever going to get to like the Matt Iglesian dreamscape where you just have so much housing that everyone can afford a place. It's just not going to happen realistically unless there's a, a bizarre building binge. I'll also say what often gets left out of this conversation is the alternative to a plan like de Blasio's. People talk about the problems with it, but they don't necessarily say what you should do instead. One take is that you should have a you should have more stringent limits for affordability. And then you get the developers saying, well, we can't make money and blah, 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 blah. It gets really arcane quickly. The other approach, which I haven't never really seen a great analysis of this, but would be for New York to try to act more like other cities around the globe and actually build decent public housing. That would be almost like Stytown, you know, a big, um, almost like middle class, little, lower middle class public housing. Um, and that's just an idea that never really gets much of a hearing anymore for, I think, because it's so unfashionable. But it's something might be interesting to, to think, talk about in the future because it's not necessarily incompatible with what de Blasio is doing now. That might be a step down the line. Listen, I'm going to I'm going to step back even further. I totally agree that the supply isn't there, but I just want to talk about, you know, very abstractly, why do we want affordable housing in a city? Why why do we want anything but rich people in a city. Like you look at a place like San Francisco, um, there was an article this week that said they're going to redefine um, who is who qualifies for affordable housing benefits as people who make up to $250,000. That was Palo Alto. Oh, Palo, Alto. Palo Alto is its own like little universe of crazy. There's this wonderful letter in the local paper 
um, a few years ago in Palo Alto, where which literally finished with, you know, when will someone stand up for normal millionaires like us against these billionaires? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so it goes back to the question of cultural richness, too. I mean, we can have an argument about exactly what that means, but I do think that if we if we went straight to, hey, we don't care, like poor people just move out. And by the way, I should mention that there's been an amazing um, WNYC thing about gentrification in Brooklyn, which we'll put a, put on the webpage, um, which illustrates it's not just about new development. It's also about just literally evicting people and selling the house from underneath them yeah. because they can resell it for more money. It's It's a crazy thing. It's happening right now. Is this a bad thing? I mean, it seems bad to the people that have... That it happens to, um, but, but but it means there's more artisanal coffee shops, and you can never have right. too many artisanal. I mean, it coffee makes shops. the question of like you know if we don't have an if we don't have a housing that's affordable to poets and artists, then we will not have culture in our city. Well, it's also just fairness, right? I mean, you don't want to kick all the poor people out of your city because that's where they have to work. If you have if you have any sense of economic, no, any, it's not just for the servants though. No, it's, no, <laughs> no, it's not about servants. It's just like if you're you know cities are job centers. Like if you want to have a thriving and like it's it's Show, you know, but we don't move been... here because of that. We move here because it's a great place to no, be. But, but I mean, in terms of why we care about this, I mean, you know, studies have shown that when when low income families have longer commutes, you have or when there are longer commutes in general, you have less intergenerational mobility. People have a harder time moving up in the world, and that's there's... true in in rural areas too. No, no, but exactly. But in general, you want to keep people. You you want to give working class people easy access to jobs and be able to live a normal life, and that's why we do care about keeping them in the city. It just how is the best way to do that? It's not just about cultural richness. I think that's almost a little bit. It's almost like a, a self serving way of putting it if you think about it, because it's saying, "Oh, I care about the aesthetics of my city." It's not just aesthetics. It's about making giving everyone opportunity. All right. On which note, we are going to move on to the millionaire bankers because. They are losing their jobs as well. It's very sad. It's it's very sad. 6,000 of them. Um, I do need to mention first that this podcast is also sponsored by Carbonite. You know who Carbonite are. They're the best backup system for your computer. And so it's very simple. You install Carbonite on your computer. It automatically backs up everything you need in your entire life to the cloud so that when your computer, you know, suddenly falls into a vat of artisanal coffee, you're fine. You just buy <laughs> a new computer and download all of your stuff onto your new computer. And, and like, what is the problem here? I mean, people get so upset about this. No, seriously. I mean, yeah, just use Carbonite. Um, get two free bonus months once you've decided to buy, which, of course, you will after your free trial. So you go to Carbonite.com and you use the offer code Slate. So that's Carbonite.com, offer code Slate, free bonus months, back up your life. Don't worry about your hard drive failing and losing years and years of your precious memories. Um, okay, so I'm going to talk about those poor, poor, poor Credit Suisse distressed debt traders. The hot, I, the hot mess. I, I have to admit, I don't know really what happened. I didn't do my homework. What is going on with Credit Suisse? You guys seem so excited about it, it that it's, I was like, I'm going to let them To be it. honest, it's not clear that the CEO even really knows what was going on. So, so the CEO of Credit Suisse is this guy, Tijan Thiam, who is, um, he was this sort of high-flying McKinsey consultant type who then became the CEO of Prudential, which is this sort of retail kind of insurer in the UK, and then became the CEO of Credit Suisse, which is one of the biggest financial institutions in the world. And 
at every step, people were saying, kind of, are you sure you can do this? And he's like, yes, yes, I'm sure I'm, I can do this. But what, he came out in October and had this huge plan for Credit Suisse. And then he came out last week and had a whole other plan for Credit Suisse based on the fact that what he thought was going on in October was not actually what was going on. It's like, they never told me that they had this massive position in illiquid distress securities. Basically, he has screwed up this thing enormously. The big picture, and we've talked about this before at Credit Suisse, is that he wants to stop being an investment bank and start being a wealth manager in Asia and the Pacific Rim. For all those Chinese people. For all those rich Chinese people. Who are now, like, fleeing. And and he's investing a huge amount of money in trying to persuade the rich Chinese people to sign up with Credit Suisse with no obvious great success. Um, The wealth management division of Credit Suisse uh, is actually weirdly losing money sometimes in some areas in as it tries to expand, and recently had this crazy scandal where there was this sort of Russian-Georgian billionaire called Bidzina Ivanishvili who (laughs) um, asked Credit Suisse to move... In 2009, he asked Credit Suisse to move his safe U.S. Treasury bonds into, like, the risky stock market because he reckoned that he was smart and he got it right. And he's like, I want more risk now. Mm -hmm. And Credit Suisse didn't do that Uh and they kept him in treasury bonds and then he got really angry um, justifiably (laughs) and said look how much the only thing they're supposed to do as wealth managers is do what wealthy people tell them to do pretty much and so but but so what they did instead was they secretly without telling him started making a bunch of ultra ultra risky trades in his account in like the russian stock market um to make up for the losses wow and then they started doing that for well yeah, then they started doing that for other clients. Wow. And they started doing all of this unauthorized trading in these clients' accounts. And then, of course, as unauthorized trading always does, it wound up, wound up blowing up in their faces and they lost money. And the whole thing was just a complete I can't disaster. imagine why their wealth management division isn't Wait, doing well. So there are two specific stories. First, can we go back to the illiquid securities? Because this is... So, so, I so wanna, this is the stuff he had to get out of in order to... Okay. I, I want to understand yeah. this. So let me... Here's my... I saw this news story and a, a few other... Me and a few other people on Twitter who aren't like uber finance geeks were kind of like, what? Like, can you actually manage this bank? Which basically he said, we have to write down like $250 million because we just have these securities on our books that we we can't really trade and they're losing money. And well, I, didn't know, money I, I didn't know about them. <laughs> they were selling them. This is, okay, okay, this so, is the craziest yeah, story. Yeah. So what, it, what the hell happened here that he supposedly did not even know about? Now he's losing all these millions. So back in October, he was like, we have this awesome distress desk. We have this amazing business in CLOs. We're the world beaters on this. And we love these people. And those are the, one of the few bits of the investment bank that we're not going to cull. And everyone goes... Okay. And then fast forward about six months, and he's saying, oh, no one told me that we had this awesome distress desk and this huge position in CLOs. And uh, it turns out that sometimes these positions go up in value, and sometimes they go down in value. And these ones went down in value, and that freaked me out. And no one told me. And really, how could they not tell me that these things could go down in value? And so what I did was I panicked. And I just told them to liquidate the entire position. And I told them that 
in like a public press conference, basically, so that the entire rest, <laughs> so that the entire rest of the world knew that Credit Suisse had to liquidate its entire position. So then that just meant everyone else just marked down their prices because they knew there was a forced seller out right, there. Right. And then I lost, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And wait, this is my fault. So okay. Wait, so, so in either case, it's his fault, right? Because either he knew about these positions and he's now saying he didn't. Oh, he didn't know about them. But he, what the problem was that. The minute that these positions, which he was saying were a really good thing back in October, started losing money, he panicked. And the last thing you want to do in that situation is panic. You go, oh, well, you know, if I'm serious about investing in this business, then I have to treat these illiquid positions as long term and, you know, things on my balance sheet. And if you're not serious about it, then you should never have committed to it in the first place. Okay, so that's story one. So this guy, so right now you have a company where the CEO is apparently like doing the most damage of anyone. But at the same time, I saw that they're now investing in, the, or they're now starting a new business with Palantir, meant to, which is the kind of data spying company. That I Peter know all Thiel about Field. Palantir. Yes, Palantir is the company that helps the, United, the federal government choose targets for drones, among other things, and also with they they help sort through when they're trying to collect data and you know for espionage activities or for national security monitoring, um, all sorts of shadowy stuff. Anyway, they're now working with Credit Suisse for on a project to identify rogue traders. Um, and this brings up the question in my mind of... Are they going to take them out with drones? I, I, that, would be, <laughs> that would be amazing. But so I guess this whole thing with um, Credit Suisse's CEO makes me wonder, A, is this an example of mega banks being too big to manage? Or is it just kind of the quirks and, and uh, sort of failings of this one dude? And B, could there be a... I mean... Could this actually result in some innovation? His his inadequacies result in some innovations here that make it easier to manage giant banks by okay, using big data. So there's the most wonderful, awesome, brilliant answer to this. Okay, you're gonna love this so much. Am I gonna be? Am I gonna be happy or sad about this the is, answer? Okay, number one. Yeah, Credit Suisse, like all systemically important financial institutions, is too big to manage, and we have learned that. And you can blame, you know, the current guy. But ultimately, it's not at all obvious that anyone is really capable of managing an institution of this kind of complexity and size and, you know, geographic disbursement. That's the first thing. The second thing is that, yes, they've managed to get Palantir to come in to try and prevent rogue trader losses, which may or may not work. Um, Might well work, actually, because most of these losses can be, um, you know, you look back with hindsight and go, how on earth did we miss that? So you should be able to pick up Just the up very fact things. that like, the rogue traders typically never leave the office. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, so, they, so there's been, in, in most financial institutions, you have mandatory vacation for precisely this um, reason so that you, people notice when, you know, a trader goes and then, you know, they have to be managing their positions. Um, there, are, there have to be better ways of noticing this kind of behavior than just mandatory vacation. Um, <laughs> or just waiting for the explosion. Or just waiting for the explosion. <laughs> but but Credit Suisse has found an yeah. even better way still, and from another Swiss institution, and this is my favorite bit of the entire story, which is they've gone along to Zurich Re, which is another huge um, financial institution in Switzerland. It's a reinsurance company. And they've bought 700 million Swiss francs of, get this, operational risk insurance. Oh no! Wait a second. So <laughs> it's like we can't. They're insuring stop? their own stupidity. Yeah, yeah. they're basically, <laughs> in, but they're buying insurance against rogue traders. Holy crap! 
Doesn't that mean that, like, now that they have insurance, they can be even more careless? Yeah, I mean, there is a certain moral amount hazard, of moral hazard, but they do they do have like a three and a half billion Swiss franc first loss tranche. But this is the most amazing thing. They are literally buying insurance against their own incompetence. And they're selling it to their customers, I and, assume? Uh, and, yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they genuinely are selling it to their own customers. This is where it just gets so wonderfully. Zurich Re is keeping a certain amount of like the, the second loss tranche. And then like the third loss tranche, is now being packaged up by Zurich Re and then sold back to Credit Suisse's customers as a security. That's this, people. You, people you have such little faith. Anybody who like defends finance as being a useful uh, industry <laughs> is going to have to listen to me talk about this. This is that's amazing. It's the most wonderful story in the world. That's just like throwing up your hands and saying "fuck it all." <laughs> that's crazy. So Credit Suisse, may you always just innovate like this because it's it's amazing the, to the, behold. The systemically important hot mess that is. Are there credit, credit default swaps on that stuff? <laughs> they <laughs> might, they basically are these these operational risk insurance securities are a little bit like binary default options on rogue traders. Wow. Um, okay, enough of credit sweeps because like this is the story which is just going to run and run, we can tell. Um, numbers round next, but first, we are also sponsored this week by Mile IQ. You will like Mile IQ because you drive a lot, you listeners out there. We love you in your listening to Slate Money in your cars. And what you want to be doing in your car is listening to Slate Money and other amazing Panoply podcasts. And what you don't want to be doing in your car is spending a bunch of mental effort totting up how many miles you've been driving, how many of those were personal, how many of those were business, multiplying the business miles by 54 cents per mile, filing reimbursement claims, putting them on your tax forms, and all of that kind of random, crappy paperwork, which is the worst, am I right? It's, it's so wrong. It's so bad. So what you do instead yeah. is you just install Mile IQ on your phone, and it does all of that for Amazing. you. And it just does it in the background automatically. And I, don't, I can't talk about you, but I can say the average Mile IQ user logs $547 a month in drives. That's over $6,000 a year. This is an app which pays for itself like no app you've ever used. So text Slate Money to 31996. You'll get a free trial and you'll also get 20% off the price of an annual plan. So 31996, text Slate Money to 31996, 20% off, mile IQ, save money, make money. It's awesome pants. Yes, it is. Yes, it's amazeballs. <laughs> Amaze sauce. It's, no. it's awesome sauce. Okay, awesome sauce, yes. Um, Kathy, what's yeah, the number? 100. What, what does that mean? That's the number of mysteriously missing concussions. Did you guys read about this? Oh, yeah. I, mean, I, I have like, I have a bet on with my friends that the NFL will be gone in 10 years. Because the NFL and the the New York Times actually had this whole thing where they talked about how the NFL is explicitly taking moves out of the tobacco industry playbook, which you've got to say is not a good look. The lobbyists from the tobacco industry are helping the the lobbyists from the NFL um, concoct studies on concussions and their their effects. And what they had, what they found, the New York Times did this, um, studied the studies and found that they were missing 100 concussions from teams where they were counting the team's games as concussion-free. So just it's not like they the weren't teams... just missing the, the data. They were actually saying, oh, these could th- for whatever reason, for many, many years, these teams had no concussions at all. 
So this is this is the most amazing thing. The NFL was trying to work out how frequent concussions were. And so they looked at the total number of concussions and, did, and divided it by the total number of games. And they just conveniently forgot to mention that a whole bunch of these games were f- played by teams which simply didn't report right. concussions. And they said, well, if you didn't report concussions, obviously there were no concussions. Right. So the numerator was much smaller than it should have been. The denominator was the, the right size. And so it's a real underreporting. As a data scientist, this is a very offensive to me, um, especially <laughs> if you consider that <laughs> these concussions were available in public injury reports. So it's not like they were. it's unavailable data. They, it, they just simply didn't collect the data. Yeah. Uh, I will say I'm pretty sure Trump voters will, will keep the NFL around for at least 10 years more, if not longer. If the NFL is still here, at least I think that the number of high school uh, football teams are going to go down. That I, I think is actually the biggest crisis for football is parents. Should be. Yeah. Um, so, Felix, you're looking at me as if you want me to share go, a number. Go. Go. Share your you're number. You're giving I'm, me that number. I'm, I'm all in favor of Jordan numbers. Yeah. So my number is $25.6 billion. That is the size of Yale's endowment. Um, and the reason I'm bringing that up is because right now the state of Connecticut yes. is there are some legislators who are talking about trying <clears> to tax it. Um, it's kind of a roundabout tax where they would not have to pay it if they instead invested some of their returns in quote like job creation and education. It's I don't want to get too far into the specifics. What I'm interested in here is the idea of an individual state trying to tax something like a college endowment and what sort of weird tax avoidance that would try to like if that could ever be effective essentially. So I mean it it is quite funny. It's the state of Connecticut passing a law which applies to any Connecticut university with over $10 billion yeah. in endowment. Right, which applies yeah. applies only to Yale. But listen, there's been a lot of discussion, which we, we should actually have, I think, at, yeah. at some point, of the you know, university endowment funds. Our universities are just hedge funds with a little bit of a, a, a academic uh, we, institution attached. Felix and I have both written about this. We're among like 20 million other people, and I feel like we keep promising to have an episode where we discuss we, this. We will, we will have an episode about this. Um, my to answer your question, Jordan, I yeah. feel that this particular piece of legislation would probably just create effectively shadow endowments. That, that's exa- that's kind of what I was thinking too. And, the, and if I wanted to give four hundred million dollars to Yale, I wouldn't give it to Yale. I would give it to a nonprofit foundation I created, whose sole purpose was to give five percent of it's kind of a super pack to and, Yale and exactly. that and that endowment. <laughs> it's like an academic yeah. super. Pack. No, it's seriously in that you're working would... four things that Yale cares about. Yeah. <laughs> But, but, that foundation but, would be in the Cayman Islands, and <laughs> it would it would be able to invest in all sorts of interesting things, and yeah, which wow. the L endowment already does. But yes, yeah. we will we will talk about endowments because it's a fascinating subject. Maybe we will wait for Muhammad Alarian. To yeah, come back he knows that. So he knows that. Oh my God! Wait, that would be well. wait that would be an amazing episode. We have I, to get Muhammad back we, for that. We'll ask if Muhammad will come back to talk about endowments. Um, my number. Because if there's one thing we like to talk about on this show, even more than Credit Suisse, Argentina is Valiant. Oh, Valiant. Sorry. Okay, we got my number is 1.5 million. Um, one of the biggest shareholders in Valiant was this fund called the Sequoia Fund. Yep. And my number is 1.5 million. 1.5 million is the number of shares that the Sequoia Fund sold at the absolute low Oof. of um, Valiant's share price just after it completely imploded. The, the CEO of Credit Suisse told them to sell at that moment. After holding on to this stake forever and ever and ever and ever, they finally unloaded one and a half million of their shares. But my the reason I'm the reason that I'm picking on this as a number is not 
to pick on Sequoia so much as to pick on the wonderful double speak of finance. Because if you ask Sequoia, why on earth did you sell these shares at the absolute low? They will tell you, um, oh, it's because we made a really stupid investment. We sold way too late. No, they won't tell you that. What they will tell you is, quote, this was an effort to reduce investors' taxes by booking capital losses. Oh, oh my oh, God. Oh, oh, it was just some tax harvesting. Oh, my just God. Just a little bit of tax harvesting, that's all. Nothing to see here, this folks. This is the nicest way of saying we lost money I've ever heard. <laughs> don't worry. Don't worry. It's going to reduce your bill. That is awesome. We're not, we're not losing money for you. We're reducing your taxes. You, you can't Everybody, have... it's like tax season, so everybody's like, oh, that sounds good. Let's reduce my taxes. <laughs> I mean, no, tax harvesting is a thing. It's just not not that kind. <laughs> oh, my God. That's awesome. Anyway, uh, that is it for us this week. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. Um, subscribe to us because from here on in, it's going to probably sound different. It's not going to sound like 95 Morton Street anymore. Right. But it's going to be a whole new... different timber. There's going to be a whole new sound of Slate Money, which we will all discover what that is next week. Um Keep on writing to us. The email address is slatemoney at slate.com. Thanks to the producer, Audrey Quinn, the executive producers, Andy Bowers and Steve Lichtai. Check out all of the Panoply podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. And somehow, from some studio or some location somewhere in New York City, we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.